0: Well, we've spent five Sundays already looking at what's called one of the minor prophets. Minor only because of the length, not because of the importance. In fact, we're in the church calendar period known as Lent, the time leading up to Resurrection Sunday and as obscure as it might seem in places Zechariah chapters 9 to 14 that we're going to now be heading into are the most quoted section of the prophets in the passion narratives of the gospel and next to Ezekiel Zechariah has influenced the author of Revelation more than any other Old Testament writer so If no other reason, I mean, first of all, it is in the Bible, but if for no other reason, this alone should encourage us to make careful study of the book of Ezekiel. Uh, I've shared with you that the book begins with a series of eight visions, eight night visions, in which you get this ongoing sense that things are just not right. Do I need to emphasize that point this morning? One of the other podcasts that I listen to is called, uh, it's a podcast about the craft and character. It's about ministers preparing God's word and preaching God's word. And one of the things Steve Carter said this week, as he was interviewing one of the guys that I was listening to, was. How important it is that that particular preacher always began after reading the text by taking that message not just in the mind but to the heart, helping us to realize that there is a, a problem that we face that God's Word can answer. And things aren't right, not just in our world, folks, things aren't right in our church. Things are not right in our church. 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20. That alone says things are not right. But do we have a heart for the fact that things are not right? Do we really have a burden as to try to figure out why things might not be right? So far we've seen how in the introduction, those first six verses of chapter 1, there was this report of the reception of the Word of the Lord by the prophet Zechariah. And then we jumped right into this first major section. The eight prophetic visions that came in one night to Zechariah. And even though there is a sense that things are not right, uh, in the visions themselves, there is a a sense that there is a a purpose there, a purpose of encouragement. In the words of my friends Mark Halen and Clay Ham in the little commentary they wrote, They said that what these visions do is they take the troubling circumstances and now they look at them in terms of the larger picture. They're placed in kind of a supra-historical, that's their word, a supra-historical perspective. Now, in terms of the visions themselves, I shared with you this chiastic structure that appears. How the first vision is about A patrol of the earth, and the last vision that we're going to look at today, God's patrolling again the earth, and how there is in visions two and three the idea that the nations were meeting retribution, and that Jerusalem did have a protector, that evil would meet retribution, and that Jerusalem is going to be purified. But right there in the heart the idea that the high priest was going to be reinstated and that God's power was going to be there in terms of helping with that and the assertion that comes right in that fifth vision in these two that are at the center the focus of the chiastic structure is seen there in chapter 4 verse 6 this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel not by might nor by power But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's a message that you and I need to hear. It's the focal point. It's the message that, in terms of divine resources, it's a reminder that human strength, human ability, are not the answer. The exiles needed to know that their own abilities cannot be and would not accomplish the rebuilding of the temple. It would only come about its completion would only result by means of the Spirit of God. In fact, again, there's a literary device there. It's called an oracular formula formula. Uh, he uses the word, says the Lord Almighty. And when that comes up in the scriptures, it highlights even further the contrast being made between human and divine strength. And I noted how Zerubbabel's contemporary, how Haggai's perspective was that the message of God's presence and power could be seen in the words, my spirit remains among you, do not fear. So here's my question. Do you believe God is with you? If so, do not fear. The first three visions had to do with God's program in terms of the establishment of Jerusalem as the center of God's glory on earth, filled and overflowing with a people, living in peace and security in God's presence. In fact, Gentile dominion and oppression had been removed. So visions 1 to 3 are about God working on behalf of His people. But beginning with the fourth vision, the focus changes. It changes to God's ministry within the people themselves. And this is the focus of the visions. God is at work within us if we will let Him. If we'll let him. Many of us won't let him because we won't do what Mary Jane read as a part of the sermon, as a part of the Sermon on the Mount as our call to worship this morning. Do to others as you would have them do to you. I, I like that little thing of paying forward. We've done it. And what a blessing. And we've had it done to us. We didn't do it so it'd be done to us. But we've gone through McDonald's and said, Hey, I'll pay for the person behind me. Give me their bill too. When we were going through the drive-thru. And we paid for ours and we paid for theirs. And we went on up and got our food and drove off. And just had that feeling. That positive feeling of knowing One time I really had a positive feeling because I didn't realize the car behind me was a single mother with about seven kids in there. But that's okay. I'm sure she needed it. Now as we move into the visions of chapter 5, there's a picture of confrontation. The sinful people in Judah begin to hear God's plan to remove evil from the land both sins against God and sins against each other but the confrontation should bring comfort one commentator characterizes the eight visions as visions of encouragement the first vision of the writer that God has not forgotten Jerusalem the craftsman that God will destroy her enemies the surveyor that Jerusalem will be destroyed Joshua the high priest that there will be a cleansed nation and the candlestick that God's power enables them. And now today we look at the final visions. The final of the eight visions. So let's go to God's Word. Zechariah chapter 5 verses 1-4. to And we're not going to be here all day. Ray looked at the bulletin and saw the text that it was chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through 6, 15. And he said, are you going to preach all the way through that? No, we're okay. We're going to get out of here. I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to preach all the way through, but we're not going to read it all. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and it's width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on the one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what's on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Wow. Wow. Now, I'm sure that most of us have seen one of those huge banners flying behind an airplane, advertising something. So this vision might not seem as weird as others unless you think about it from the perspective of an Israelite in 520 B.C. Basically, a giant billboard 30 feet by 15 feet. That's what those measurements translate to. A giant billboard flying in the sky I think that would have been extremely unusual. And both the size and the fact that it's flying would identify it as coming directly from God and thus something to which we need to pay attention. And this scroll is a bit unusual in that there's writing on both sides. I shared with you back those who were with us for the study of Revelation that a scroll with writing on both sides was not the norm you only had this writing on the one side so that as you opened it you could read it there was no turning it over this side has writing this scroll has writing on both sides and on the one side it says that everyone who steals will be cleared out on the other side those who swear falsely will be cleared out and cleaned out two specific sins theft and lying And both with a promise of punishment. Now why these? What's going on here? Well our first question in terms of these two particular sins should be the obvious. Was there something going on in that day that Zechariah was aware of that God wanted Zechariah to know about and to proclaim that was going on among the people? And the, ca- the fact is is that they are, they are applicable. but most interpreters see something more going on here. What they see is a breakdown in the community. people taking unfair advantage of others, not living in an honest and respectful manner with one another, putting themselves ahead of others, and quite likely cheating and manipulating them. And not only that, there was a relationship between the two sins listed a legal relationship when an allegation was made for which there was no conclusive proof the last step was to take the accused into the temple and have them swear an oath of innocence and if they swore falsely in other words if they lied the people assumed that that was now a matter between that person and God and God would deal with their falsehood And that's precisely what this vision is about. That God will deal with those who lie and ignore and twist the law to their own advantage. Those who have manipulated others and used their strength or opportunity for personal gain, who have stolen and then lied about their innocence, will be dealt with by the Lord of hosts. Did you hear that name that was in there? 285 times in the Old Testament God is referred to as the Lord of hosts. And every time it's as a warrior who fights both the cosmic conflict against divine forces and through human historical events for his own people Israel. The warrior God, the Lord of hosts, is sending this curse into every house. The house of the thieves and the house of the liars. And the curse is going to remain in the house until it's completely destroyed. Both its timbers and its stones. Which, by the way, (coughs) Zechariah's (coughs) hearers would have heard that and they would have said, Oh, that's not us exiles for the most part. Who, because we have returned, we're living in tents and makeshift houses. That's the ones who came back, who took over the houses of the ones who were there. They're the ones that had timbers and stones, taking advantage. Now, in the second vision, which I'm not going to read, verses 5 to 11, Zechariah looks up and sees a measuring basket. The type of basket that was used by merchants to measure grain after the harvest. They would take a basket of the grain. It would be a measure. They would pay the farmer what was owed by that means. But in this vision, instead of it being filled with grain, there's something really grotesque. We're told that it's filled with the sins of everyone their iniquity in all the land. And it is personified in the form of a lady in the basket whose name is wickedness. Now, why a woman? Believe me, it is not for misogynist or sexist reasons at all. Zechariah is not pointing fingers at women. Remember that the Israelites had returned from slavery in Babylon. And undoubtedly they had carried with them some of the religious practices and influences of that country. A country that had been their home for no less than 50 years, most of them 70 or more. Mark Boda writes in his commentary, the, ide- the angel identifies the woman in the basket, as wickedness, a term used elsewhere uh, as that of idolatry in terms of the nations around Israel. So the use of this term, along with a female image in the sitting position, that, that would be an idol destined for worship in a sanctuary. And what what it's indicating is is that the Israelites were trying to bring back their idol worship with them, but God's not going to allow it. The idol's trying to escape to get out of the basket and thus be able to run rampant among the people of God, but God slams the lid shut, a heavy lead lid it says. Pushes the image of the idol back into the basket. And Zechariah sees two powerful spiritual creatures coming and removing the basket, removing the idolatry, removing the wickedness from the people of God and taking it back to Babylon. So in this second vision of chapter 5, again, there's a vivid picture of the entire people's relationship to God. A reminder of God's exclusive claim on His people. Who had God been saying over and over He was? I am the Lord your God. The only God. You should have no other gods before me. And yet we do. We do. We allow jobs. We allow houses. We allow All kinds of other things to get between us and our worship of God. You see, God wants to remind them of His exclusive claim on them. And we need to make sure we don't miss the important point. The vision is about this wickedness being removed from the midst of the people of God. An indication that it was there. And likely they had brought back these affections with them from Babylon. And God's making a statement to His people. Which brings us to the eighth and the last of the visions in the series. It's the vision of the four chariots and their horses. The vision not only completes the vision, but as we've seen in terms of the chiastic structure of the visions, it reminds us, That we're returning to the same theme as found in the first vision. The Lord is supreme over the nations and is sovereignly working for the good of his people. The intervening messages and visions, two through seven, they focused on Israel's relationship with the Lord. Now, here's the message. Once God's people are in right relationship with Him, God is ready to move forward with the intervention promised in the first vision. One of our failures, and I'm saying are, I'm including myself. You you can't imagine how many times I beat up on myself all week long preparing these messages because they speak to me as I'm preparing them. One of our problems, one of our failures, is that we somehow expect to see our spiritual, emotional, economic oppression, all of those things vanquished, even though our relationship with the Lord has not been put on right footing. Listen to me. One of the messages that we should take away from Zechariah is that God's timetable is not determined by His need to punish people who reject His rule. It's determined by the need for people to be purified and ready to enjoy all that He's prepared for them. Peter would write, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We need to hear the Word. We need to repent of our sins. We need to confess the Lord before others. We need to submit to baptism by immersion. Burying the old self in the watery graves of baptism so that we can rise to walk as a new person. Did you know that there were some people in the first century that took what happened in the new birth so seriously that they thought that they were a totally new person, that they didn't have to worry about their previous marriage or any of that? Why, it's no longer that person that lives, but now I'm a new person. They had to be corrected very quickly. We see some of that correction already going on in the New Testament. But the church fathers begin to correct that notion. No, there's continuity, but things have changed drastically. It's a transformation, a metamorphosis. It's still the caterpillar, but now it looks like a butterfly. Only when we make that submission do we begin to receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the assurance of eternal and abundant life, and many of the other benefits from the hand of God. For instance, when we've done our part, Scripture is pretty clear that God will ensure that no outside power will disrupt your peace. There is no temptation that can overcome you by which God has not provided a way of escape. That doesn't mean we're not going to have trials, tribulations, pain, suffering. But God will give us a way through them. I can remain joyful even through the process of grief. I did it with my parents' funerals. My heart was broken because I wasn't going to see them again. Of all things, today's mom's birthday. March the 20th. And I just wish I could hug her. But I have joy in knowing that she's no longer suffering and no longer in pain and that she is now in the presence of the Lord. So finally... In chapter 6, verse 9, we see once again the introductory formula which indicates that a prophetic oracle is about to follow. And it has to do with Joshua's new, and might I say, his symbolic role. Before the exile, a crown would have been placed on the head of a Davidic king. In fact, back in chapter 3 of Zechariah, God says that the branch from David's line would reign once again one day. But in this moment, Zerubbabel, David's descendant, he was governing, but he wasn't a king. So who was representing God's reign? And Zechariah is given an extraordinary assignment. For now, Joshua the high priest will bear the regal responsibilities as well. Zechariah is to crown Joshua and to give him a title that won't offend the Persians, but it would communicate the promise of God's reign. The branch. The branch is clearly a reference to a Davidic kingship. Not only in Zechariah, but in other prophets as well. So, Zechariah and some of the returnees from Babylon made an elaborate crown out of gold and silver, and they symbolically put it on Joshua the high priest. Now, this surprising crowning of a high priest as king instead of Zerubbabel is shocking. Such a union of the offices of king and priest had previously been forbidden. In fact, you might remember from your reading through the Old Testament how King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles tried to burn incense on the altar. And he was punished for his usurping of the priest's role. So this act has to be symbolic that a priest would someday become king. Here's your homework. Not only go home and read Zechariah 5 and 6. But go home and read Psalm 110. Because we see there this idea that the Lord's anointed king was also going to be declared a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who was both the king of Salem and a priest of the Most High God. And that truth is now restated in clearer terms. By the way, did you notice that it's the priest who wears the crown? and not the prince who wears some priestly garb? The priestly role is the Messiah's primary role. Joshua is wonderfully prefiguring Christ, the high priest who performs sacrifice, who is then crowned king. Again, you'll see that in Hebrews 2, verse 9. The best place to understand and interpret Scripture is with Scripture. There's only one man who's able to fulfill both the role of priest and king and that's Jesus Christ. But notice that even the Messiah is not a king who becomes a priest but a priest who becomes a king. The sacrifice on the cross takes place first. Then... He ascends to sit at the right hand of God. And as with the exiles, we too must allow Jesus to be our high priest before He can be our King. We must first allow Him to forgive us. How? As we forgive others. If you're sitting here this morning and you're harboring ill feelings towards somebody else and you haven't forgiven them, you're not going to feel the sense of forgiveness until you do that. Forgiving is not for them. You understand that, don't you? You can forgive somebody and they might not change a thing. They might not ever want to restore a relationship with you. But you're the one who benefits by forgiving. And the picture of the Messiah in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 6 has been hailed as the most inclusive, the most complete portrait of the coming king of Israel to be found in any passage in the Old Testament. Here's what it says. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place. And he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple for the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between between them both. This ceremony and the crown would have reminded the people of their hope that the Davidic messiahship, the branch, would someday be crowned king and function as both king and priest. But listen to me. Zechariah closes this book of visions with a challenge. Look again at verse 13. There shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Tob, Tobijah, Jediah, and Han, the son of Zephaniah. And listen. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is very important. The reminder to the exiles, and therefore to us as well, is that all of this would take place if the people would conform to God's will for their lives? But they didn't. 400 more years had to pass before God's glory would return. Because even though they were back in Jerusalem, even though they had rebuilt the temple, even the rabbis of that time period said, it does not appear that the glory of the Lord has returned. Because it hadn't. Why? Because the people weren't diligently trying to obey God's Word. I get so tired of hearing people say, I know what the Bible says, but I feel, I feel, I think. Your feelings are important to me, but I'm going to tell you right now, You come to me and you say, I know what the Bible says, but I think and it doesn't agree with the Word of God. My total attempt is going to get you back to the Word of God and what it says. Because only by being people of the book and by being obedient and diligent. Now we're not going to be perfect. At least I know I'm not going to be perfect. I could have prayed this morning when I first woke up God, it's a new day. Help me to commit no sins. But as soon as I got out of bed and started doing things, I I probably failed. We're not perfect, but what are we diligently pursuing? Let's pray.